Hi, everybody. Welcome back. We're going to get uh, started here with Dr. Gandhi, um, who's going to be giving us an update on COVID. And uh, I just want to kind of make a quick comment that what's also nice about this format is that uh, people can kind of come in and come out, especially for our panelists. And we're going to be having Dr. Hoy join us from Australia, where it's about, I don't know, five in the morning there right now. So she'll be uh, just waking up and uh, we'll have fresh comments for us. So, Dr. Gandhi, over to you. So over the next um, few minutes, I'm going to talk about COVID, and it's an impossible task to try to update everything about COVID. So I'll focus mostly on treatment of COVID. And near the end, I will come back to the intersection of HIV and COVID, which we've been really touching on throughout today. So um, let's go ahead and get started. I um, like to term this the multidimensional challenge of COVID-19. For those of you who remember the original Star Trek, this is Spock playing three-dimensional chess, and I, I really think COVID is a multidimensional challenge. So let's um, put this into some context. So COVID, of course, has its clinical manifestations, um, uh, primary, primarily a respiratory illness, but as we'll see, it's a multi-system disease as well. And we'll delve into a little bit of a concept of thromboinflammation. A lot of COVID treatment, of course, depends on stage and severity of disease. And we'll talk about early versus late disease, and we'll talk about the varying uh, severities of disease. And I'll include some data that was just um, published in the New England Journal uh, last night uh, that pertains to this. And then the intervention, in particular, uh, antivirals, immunomodulators, combination therapies, et cetera, uh, will be touched on um, uh, in the next uh, few minutes. So uh, a word about clinical manifestations. The classic symptoms of COVID, of course, are fever, cough, sore throat, myalgias, and malaise. Gastrointestinal symptoms can be prominent, uh, anorexia, nausea, and diarrhea. Taste and smell disturbances um, happen in about a quarter of people uh, and do seem to be more common in women than in men. Shortness of breath is a harbinger or a, or a kind of a, a portend of, of worse outcome. It can happen somewhere between five to eight days after symptom onset. And it can um, uh, be an indicator that people are declining into what we sometimes call severe disease. Laboratory findings include lymphopenia, elevated D-dimer, LDH, CRP, ferritin, liver enzymes, and interleukin-6, particularly in the severe manifestation in the hospitalized individuals. Here are some of the classic radiographic features of COVID. They could be quite um, pleiotropic, but peripheral bilateral ground glass opacities with or without consolidation. And this CT shows you, I think, one of the best uh, examples of those rounded morphologies in the peripheral lung fields that can be uh, part and parcel of the COVID presentation. So I alluded to the fact that although it's a respiratory illness, uh, pretty much every single organ system can be involved, similar in many ways to HIV. Um, people can present with neurologic uh, syndromes such as stroke, cardiovascular disease. We've seen a number of cases of myocarditis. We'll talk about that briefly. Uh, renal failure, um, gastrointestinal problems of not only symptoms, but elevated liver function tests. Um, the, the famous uh, cutaneous manifestations, which I'll show you a picture of, the COVID toes. And then it is a systemic disease, one severe, and we'll talk about the concept of thromboinflammation, but coagulopathies are, are prominent when people get uh, critically ill with COVID. So you've all uh, probably heard about or, or seen uh, this uh, COVID toes. These are erythematous, the violaceous macules, papules, papulonodules. Sometimes you can get pseudovesiculation at the tips of the digits and the soles of the feet. 
not entirely clear as to what causes this. It might be a peri-infectious or a post-infectious uh, phenomenon uh, still being defined in terms of its pathology. The cardiac manifestation, some of our most severe cases have been um, uh, acute cardiac injury with elevated troponins, um, sometimes young people presenting with heart failure and cardiogenic shock, uh, myocarditis, um, arrhythmias, and, and then thrombosis. So this entity of thromboinflammation is really um, one severe, really um, one of the hallmarks of COVID-19. From the very early days of COVID, um, associations have been made between not only inflammatory markers, but also coagulation biomarkers and, and mortality. So if you think, look at things like D-dimer, IL-6, the, the survivors of, of COVID, which are in blue, uh, have much lower levels of these um, inflammatory and thrombotic markers than the, than the non-survivors. Uh, it's thought that the inflammatory response itself may in, injure the endothelium and lead to a coagulopathy. And then you can get complications such as uh, pulmonary emboli, myocardial infarction, and disseminated intravascular coagulation. Now, a pathology study that came out relatively early in the COVID era, but I still find very, um, you know, um, insightful is uh, a comparison of lungs from people who died of COVID-19 compared to the lungs on autopsy of people who died of influenza compared to the lungs of people who died of, of non-infectious causes. And the lungs from people with COVID, really the hallmark was endothelial injury, uh, wide, widespread thrombosis. The arrows on your right-hand part of the slide um, um, point to these alveolar um, capillary microthrombi, and then this um, um, unusual um, feature of intersusceptive angiogenesis. So with that as background, let's go on to the spectrum of disease. And this is really what has made COVID such a challenge is it ranges from asymptomatic to pre, uh, or pre-symptomatic uh, infection where people have a positive test for SARS-CoV-2, but no symptoms. How frequent that is is somewhat debated in, in some literature recently. About 20% of people uh, never develop symptoms. Um, and in other series, it can be up to about 40%. Uh, but this is, is obviously a... Um, people who never develop symptoms are, are harder to, to define and the studies have ranged between 20 to 40%. Uh, mild illness consists of um, uh, things like fever, cough, sore throat, taste, smell disturbances, but largely no shortness of breath and, um, and abnormal imaging is, is a little plus minus here, but at least no shortness of breath. Moderate disease, and this is important when we get to treatment, is defined as having an oxygen saturation over 94%, but with evidence of lower respiratory tract disease, whether it be clinical evidence, tachypnea, or imaging findings. And then severe disease from the very early days of COVID is defined as having an oxygen saturation below 94% uh, or uh, really extensive uh, lung infiltrates. And then finally, critical illness is, is respiratory failure, shock, multi-organ dysfunction. So data out of China from February showed that about of those people who develop symptoms, about 80% have mild to moderate disease, about 15% have severe disease, and about 5% become critically ill. So here are some of the risk factors um, for um, severe COVID-19. Um, these are, I think, the CDC feels like there's really solid data for the ones on this, on, on the left-hand side of the slide, so older age um, in every series that's been looked at. Uh, chronic lung disease, cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, obesity with a BMI of over 30, sickle cell disease, chronic kidney disease, and then immunocompromised states from solid organ transplant. Possible risk factors include pregnancy, 
and other immunocompromised states. And when we get to the last quarter, a third of the talk, we'll talk about HIV. What is not also in doubt is not only in the U.S., but really throughout the world, there's been a disproportionate burden of COVID-19 among racial and ethnic minorities in the U.S., Native Americans, and among the poor. So this is a, a, par- a treatment paradigm that um, that I think um, puts the severity of disease in context with what we think about the disease pathogenesis. We think um, in mild disease, the viral replication is 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 prominent um, just before someone gets symptoms, and in early days of symptoms is when viral replication or at least nasopharyngeal nasal swabs uh, levels of, of SARS-CoV-2 tend to be the highest. We think then that will taper off over time. And inflammation certainly seems to be prominent when people get into the severe disease category. And when we get to the treatments and the, the proven treatments, this will come back to this particular slide. The reason why I like to put this in this context is that will situate the treatments in the different phases. So we think antivirals will likely be most effective in, in the earlier stages of disease. I'll talk about antibodies because that's where the, the news is, the, the latest news has come in is on antibodies. And then we think that the immunomodulators and the, and the, um, immune uh, suppressants like dexamethasone will, will fit into the severe critical category. Okay, so here are some of the antiviral targets. Um, uh, viral entry is through the ACE2 receptor. There's also a host enzyme called Tempress2, a drug that's under evaluation, works uh, on these stages. Uh, Tempress2 is targeted by Camistat. Hydroxychloroquine, which I won't talk about in this talk, uh, unlike uh, many of the other talks I've, I've given, um, is thought to have an effect on membrane fusion, but I will say the data for hydroxychloroquine, and I'm happy to come back to that uh, later in the Q&A, uh, has not borne out a role for hydroxychloroquine in, thus far in any stage of disease, whether it be post-exposure prophylaxis, um, early disease, or hospitalized patients. Uh, lopinavir ritonavir is thought to affect the viral protease, and then the drug that I'll talk a bit about now is from Desivir, which is um, uh, targeting the RNA-dependent RNA polymerase. Okay, so remdesivir. Remdesivir is a nucleotide prodrug and inhibits the viral RNA polymerase and works as a chain terminator. So the study that led to the recent approval of remdesivir is the ACT-1 study, along with some other studies. Um, This was done in hospitalized patients who had lower respiratory tract infection, and they were randomized to get 10 days of intravenous remdesivir or placebo. And the the results, the final results, which were just published earlier this month, showed that recovery was more rapid with remdesivir than with placebo, uh, 10 days versus 15 days. So a five-day improvement on average of, of recovery. Mortality was 11% in the remdesivir group and 15% in the placebo group, uh, with a hazard ratio of 0.73, which was not uh, statistically significant. There appeared to be a trend, but not statistically significant. The benefit of remdesivir was clearest in those on supplemental oxygen, but who had not yet been intubated. And a manufacturer-sponsored trial called SIMPLE showed that in people with severe COVID-19 who were not yet intubated, five days of remdesivir is as good as 10 days of remdesivir. Now, what about in moderate disease? This is a manufacturer-sponsored study of a little under 600 hospitalized patients with moderate disease. As a reminder, pulmonary infiltrates, but O2-SAT over 94%. These individuals um, got equally randomized to remdesivir for 10 days, remdesivir for five days, or standard of care. And by day 11, somewhat surprisingly, the 10-day remdesivir group had a single, similar single clinical status as the standard of care group, but the five-day remdesivir group had a better distribution of clinical status 
as compared to the standard of care. The authors wrote that this was of uncertain clinical importance. It was a, a modest effect, but a statistically significant effect. Again, happy to come back to this when we get into the Q&A, but I think in hospitalized patients with moderate disease, I think it's reasonable to decide on, to decide on remdesivir use on a case-by-case basis. The FDA approval for remdesivir extends to people who are hospitalized with moderate disease. And in my own practice, in someone who has substantial risk factors for worsening, I do use remdesivir in moderate disease, but in someone who might be very young, who is, um, has very few risk factors, often those individuals will get better um, without, without any particular antiviral um, drug. What about solidarity? Uh, this, of course, has been a, a point of much discussion ever since the preprint of the solidarity trial came out recently. Just as a reminder, this is a WHO-sponsored open-label randomized trial that was done in over 30 countries, um, involved over 11,000 hospitalized patients. This uh, trial looked at a, a variety of what they call repurposed antivirals, hydroxychloroquine, remdesivir, lopinavir, ritonavir, and beta interferon. And none of the study drugs had a de- definite effect on mortality. The focus has largely been on remdesivir um, because that's... Um, um, the antiviral that we've been using here in the U.S. Uh, more than the other ones that were cited in, in solidarity. For remdesivir, where there was a little over 5,000 people in the solidarity trial, um, half got remdesivir, half got standard of care, the death rate ratio for, uh, was 0.95, really not evidence of, of benefit. So how do we square solidarity with what we just saw with ACT? I guess it's important to say that solidarity did not assess time to recovery, whereas ACT did. That was the primary endpoint of ACT. And it is possible that the open-label design of solidarity may have affected the duration of hospitalization. It's quite clear that people stayed in the hospital in all of the arms in order to get the active agents. Uh, interesting thing that the solidarity um, investigators did is they did a meta-analysis of the randomized remdesivir trials, their own trial, which accounted for the bulk of the remdesivir um, clinical trials experience, as well as ACT and and, the, and studies from China and the manufacturer studies. And what they saw was interesting, intriguing, which is that the lower risk groups, not on ventilators, had a mortality of 0.8. It was not statistically significant. Their 99% confidence interval was 0.63 to just over 1, 1.01. But in the higher risk groups, uh, there was really no effect of the remdesivir. So the, how do I interpret this? Um, I think that remdesivir has a, a clinical effect on recovery, time to time, a possible, uh, time until recovery. I think it, um, it's less clear that it has a mortality benefit. And I, I think it's not the be all and end all of uh, COVID-19 treatment. We need more and, and better drugs, uh, but I, I think it has an effect, but not as great of an effect as we had hoped it would have. Uh, let's say a word about convalescent plasma. This has, of course, um, been in the news. Um, convalescent plasma, uh, the FDA issued an emergency use authorization for convalescent plasma based on analysis of data from an expanded access program run out of Mayo. This particular EUA was based on a comparison of outcomes among patients who got convalescent plasma with a high titer of neutralizing antibodies to outcomes in patients with a low titer. Overall, there was no difference between the high titer group and the low titer group in seven days survival. But when they did a post, when a post hoc analysis was done on about 3,000 people out of the 35,000 people, it suggested a benefit of high titer plasma using a different assay in patients who got the plasma within three days of diagnosis, who were not intubated and who were less than 80 years of age. 
Now, the FDA itself and their EUA and the NIH COVID-19 treatments panel said, and I would agree with this, that because of the lack of a comparison group and the possibility of confounding, convalescent plasma should not be standard of care and that randomized trials should be completed. And the reason the NIH said that and the FDA and their EUA said the same is because it's also possible that with the single arm expanded access program, the people who got low titer plasma actually had a deleterious effect. And we really need a, a comparative randomized trial uh, in order to know to, to know whether to use this drug or this use this intervention. Okay, so the latest um, uh, intervention that I want to spend a minute about, because this was just published last night in the New England Journal, are monoclonal antibodies. We've all been hearing about this in the news. The monoclonal antibodies that are being talked about are against the SARS-CoV-2 um, spike protein, and they're being studied for both treatment and prevention. In the publication from last night, in outpatients with mild to moderate disease, so people not in the hospital, not hypoxic, participants were randomized to receive an intravenous infusion of placebo or one of three doses of a neutralizing antibody um, called LY-CoV-555. This particular antibody was isolated from the blood of someone who had recovered um, from COVID-19. So what did they find? First of all, what they're calling it bamlanivimab. I've been practicing that all day, bamlanivimab. This particular antibody at day 11, um, the intermediate dose of the antibody appeared to accelerate the decline in viral load, the SARS-CoV-2 viral load. Intriguingly, but I would say not definitively, the, the frequency of emergency department visit or hospitalization was lower in the antibody groups, the pooled antibody groups. It was 1.6% versus 6.3% in the placebo group. And intriguingly, in the higher risk group, people over the age of 65 with obesity, 4% were hospitalized in the antibody group and 15% in the placebo group. And then on your right, part of the graph, you'll see change in symptom score, and that was better in the pooled antibody group than in the placebo group. Um, uh, diminution in symptoms um, was greater with the, with the antibody. Um, this trial is ongoing, and actually the AIDS Clinical Trials Group in a study led by Dr. Davy Smith on the panel um, is, is studying this particular intervention. Um, you may have heard that in hospitalized patients, um, a different group of individuals, this particular um, antibody, that study was stopped because in hospitalized patients, it didn't appear to be beneficial. But I think as I um, keep stressing, there may be important differences as to the timing of when to use these different interventions. And the antibody study in mild to moderate disease that the AIDS clinical trial group and Dr. Smith are leading is, is very much ongoing and is still enrolling um, quite briskly. Okay, a word about dexamethasone. Uh, prior to COVID, there has been a lot of controversy over the many years as, uh, about the use of steroids in viral pneumonia and acute respiratory distress syndrome. But because of that hyperinflammatory state in COVID, steroids were evaluated as a potential intervention. And these are the results of the recovery trial, not to be confused with time to recovery, but the recovery trial, uh, which is a randomized trial among hospitalized patients in the UK. A little over 2,100 people got dexamethasone. Over 4,300 got usual care. The overall mortality in all comers was 17% lower. The relative risk of mortality was 0.83. That benefit was really concentrated among people who were on a ventilator or ECMO where the relative risk of mortality was lowered by 36%, or there was also an important uh, effect on people who are on lower amounts of oxygen, um, an 18% reduction in mortality. The important point here 
Um, so always keep in mind is among people who were not on oxygen, there was not only no benefit, but there was a possibility of harm with an increased mortality rate that was not significant, but certainly doesn't support the use of dexamethasone for people who are outpatients or who are not on oxygen. And those people, we should be avoiding uh, dexamethasone if they're uh, not on oxygen. And then um, a word about interleukin-6 inhibitors. Um, from the early days of COVID, again, uh, interleukin-6 levels have been correlated. High levels of interleukin-6 have been correlated with worse clinical outcomes. Um, there's this concept of a cytokine storm that can occur in severe COVID-19. And in early non-randomized studies, it suggested a possible benefit of inhibiting the IL-6 pathway. There's a very nice editorial uh, that I've updated from uh, JAMA um, just in the last couple of weeks that, that puts on a, a single table um, that I've adapted here, a number of the randomized trials for tocilizumab. So tocilizumab is an interleukin-6 receptor blocker. And here are some of those trials. Um, some of the trials have shown on, on some of their endpoints, like um, death or, or um, mechanical ventilation progression or clinical status, some effects of tocilizumab. But I'll draw your attention to the one on the far right. Uh, this was done here in Boston, was published in the New England Journal recently. In that particular study, there was no effect of tocilizumab on intubation or death. But I think I'll draw your attention mostly to the to the last uh, row, the one in red, highlighted in the box red, where mortality really doesn't seem to differ in any of these randomized trials between the tocilizumab versus the comparator group. I would say for now, this is an area to keep your eye on. I, I think I would not use it in, in standard practice, but I think the trials, more and more data will come out and we will see where this ends up. But right now, I wouldn't use it outside of a, a clinical trial. And again, happy to engage in discussion during the Q&A on any of this. Okay, so we'll come back to our, our treatment spectrum, um, the stages and severities of disease. And I think what I can say is um, remdesivir, I do believe, has a role in, let's say, moderate into severe disease. Dexamethasone certainly has a role in severe and especially in critical disease. And hopefully over time, we'll be able to build upon this framework um, with more and more drugs. One um, comment here is a lot of what I've been talking about, with the exception of those monoclonal antibodies, have been um, trials focused on moderate, severe, or critical disease. People in the hospital. Solidarity was in the hospital. Act 1 was in the hospital. Really, but though the bulk of COVID-19 is mild disease and not in the hospital, and that's really why the trials that are focusing on mild to moderate disease, I think, could have a, a major impact if we can find a, an intervention that has an effect. And, and that this, this point is just making the same point in a visual form, which is we need to move our trials from, from the right-hand part of the, from the right-hand part of the uh, graphic, which is the hospitalized patients, earlier and earlier into the course of disease, which is where the bulk of people with COVID, you know, are, are going. Okay, so let me summarize this part of the talk with a few points before going on to COVID and HIV. So I think I've, I've uh, hopefully convinced you that COVID um, treatment revised, requires a multidimensional approach with understanding of the host, the stage and severities of disease and the intervention. And depending on the host, the stage severity of disease, therapy may very well differ. Antiviral therapy may be most useful in a different stage than immunomodulators. And then combinations um, may have a different role altogether. I do also want to draw a couple of lessons from HIV. Um, we all have lived through the pressures um, to deploy interventions. Um, certainly in April and, May and March, 
there was intense pressure to, to use drugs that turned out later, like hydroxychloroquine, not to have a discernible effect. But I think the lesson of HIV is that we got to temper that pressure to, de- to deploy interventions by the importance of finding out if the treatment really works. That was true in HIV in the 1990s, and it's certainly still true with COVID. I think the progress will be much faster with COVID. That iterative process where we build on advances until we get to that tipping point, as we did in 1996 with HIV, that process will be much faster because of the the emergency of it. But I think we'll get there the same way as we did with HIV. So in the last few minutes, um, uh, we'll talk about... Um, Three questions on COVID-19 and HIV. Is HIV itself a risk factor for severe COVID-19? Do HIV medications have activity against the coronavirus? And one slide on what is the impact of COVID-19 on HIV care and prevention? So is HIV a risk factor for COVID-19? Um, here's a da- here's um, a study out of South Africa that looked at over three and a half million People in the public sector, um, adults of whom over 500,000 had HIV. In this particular study, 22,000 people without HIV had COVID-19. I'm sorry, 22,000 people had COVID-19 and did not, were not deceased. There were 625 um, COVID-19 related deaths. When they looked at the impact of HIV, the hazard ratio for COVID-19 related mortality was about twofold greater. Surprisingly, it was irrespective of viral suppression and immunosuppression. That's a surprise because at least with other respiratory pathogens like influenza, it's really the people with low CD4 counts that have the greatest trouble with those respiratory pathogens. But the authors were careful, and I think this is important, that they can't really rule out residual confounding. For example, they didn't have data on socioeconomic status, which we know impacts COVID-19 outcomes, as well as obesity, which has an effect on COVID-19. Another study that was just public, uh, presented at the HIV Glasgow, uh, a big meeting uh, in the last couple of weeks, is out of the UK. This is a prospective cohort in the UK of hospitalized patients, over 47,000 of them, of whom um, 123 had HIV. Overall, the mortality was similar with and without HIV, 27% um, with HIV, 32% without. But when they did adjustments for other factors that can impact mortality, the mortality turned out to be higher among uh, people with HIV, somewhere between 1.5 to 1.9, so 50 to 90 percent higher. But then here uh, in the U.S., this is a study out of the VA um, that was uh, presented at at the um, AIDS 2020 uh, virtual COVID meeting. This looked at um, over 30,000 people with HIV, of whom 250 or so had covid 76,000 people without HIV, of whom about 500 had COVID. And then when they looked at things like hospitalization, ICU admission, death, really no difference between HIV and COVID. Uh, I'm sorry, HIV and people without HIV. So I would say right now, uh, the jury is still out. One thing that might um, be a feature of all these trials, though, is this high rate of comorbidities. These are some data we assembled from Mass General. Between March and April, we identified 36 people with HIV and confirmed COVID, another 11 with probable infections. Like many studies, um, uh, racial and ethnic minorities were disproportionately impacted. 80% of our patients were racial or ethnic minorities. Our clinic as a whole is about 40% racial or ethnic minorities. But most strikingly, 85% of our patients had some non-HIV comorbidity that put them at risk for severe COVID, obesity, cardiovascular disease, et cetera. So I think the jury is still out as to whether HIV, independent of other comorbidities, is a risk factor for severe COVID. 
I think in my mind, the other comorbidities probably are going to play the dominant role. Do HIV medications have activity against SARS-CoV-2? A word about lopinavir, ritonavir. In vitro, uh, lopinavir, ritonavir inhibits the SARS-CoV protease, and therefore it was used off-label to treat people with COVID. But in a randomized trial in China, there was really no effect of lopinavir, ritonavir on clinical improvement or mortality. But the definitive word is the recovery trial from the UK, as well as the solidarity trial, which I don't have on this slide. Large trials, no impact of lopinavir, ritonavir on mortality, progression, length of stay. And I think the likely explanation is you need a lot of lopinavir, ritonavir um, to inhibit the SARS-CoV-2 protease. And in one study, you would need to swallow somewhere between 60 to 120 pills of lopinavir, ritonavir to get the levels up to where you inhibit the, uh, the coronavirus protease. And then the last slide on this topic before we begin to conclude is a study out of Spain uh, that asked the question, in people with HIV, is there some effect of antiretrovirals that they're taking on hospitalization or diagnosis? And um, in this particular study, um, they looked at over 77,000 people with HIV, of whom 236 got COVID. And it was intriguing that there was a lower rate of hospitalization in people on TDF-FTC than on TAF-FTC or Abacavir-3TC. But one really important point about this, and the reason why I have not... Um, um, told my patients that there is really an effect of this is because there could be residual confounding. That is, people who are on TDF-FTC might be younger or they might have less renal disease than people on TAF-FTC or Abacavir-3TC. And that could be the confounding influence on their COVID outcomes. And so I had a patient ask me this morning, are the drugs that he's on for his HIV protecting him against um, COVID-19? And I said, really, we have no evidence that they are. And I would take all the same precautions as if you weren't on uh, HIV meds. I don't think the HIV meds are making it more likely that there'll be a problem, but I don't think they're protective either. And then last but not least, what is the impact of COVID-19 on HIV care and prevention? Just one slide, but this could be a whole lecture in and of itself. Two studies out of the AIDS 2020 meeting, a survey of over 13,000 LGBTI people in over 130 countries, more than a quarter of people with HIV reported difficulty with accessing ART refills. Then a study done here in Boston on looking at um, PrEP care, su substantial disruptions in PrEP care. But most concerningly, the disruptions are disproportionately among vulnerable subpopulations, the young, uh, non-whites, uh, Latinx, and uh, publicly insured. So with that, I'm going to give you my final thoughts. I hope there will be time for some comments and questions, um, and here are my final thoughts. The disproportionate impact on racial and ethnic minorities of COVID-19 and HIV highlight how disparities drive disparate infectious diseases, and that we must ad address the structural forces that end these intolerable inequities in healthcare access and outcomes for both HIV and COVID. Second, though, we can't let the COVID-19 pandemic cause us to lose sight of how far we've come in our quest to end the HIV epidemic, as, as Dr. Del Rio and others were saying. Despite the overwhelming need that we all have to respond to COVID-19, we must continue at the same time to move forcefully to end the HIV epidemic here and around the world. So with that, I'm going to stop. Um, thank you all for your attention. Thank a number of people for contributions to these slides. And I'm going to turn it back over to Mike to see if there's a few minutes for any um, questions that we have.
Sure. Uh, thanks. That was outstanding, Raj. Um, you know, um, there are a couple. Let's, let's get to the questions from the uh, audience first. So you'd mentioned about this increased coagulopathy and I've, you know, the struggle that I have, I, I cover a COVID clinic and there are people who are not in the hospital, but they come in with this sort of nondescript chest pain. They're short of breath. So I check a D-dimer, and it's modestly elevated. So do you use aspirin? Do you use some sort of rivaroxaban, or do you, you know, Lovenox? What do you do? You know, I I, I wish I knew. (laughs) That's a question that we don't have an answer to. I think right now, in fact, ASH, the American Society of Hematology, just updated their guidelines um, within the last couple of weeks on COVID. And my read of it is prophylaxis, yes, but other these are for hospitalized patients, prophylaxis, yes. As to whether we go to intermediate or high-dose anticoagulation, I don't think there's a, a consensus on yet. Um, I, I think yeah, we need I to know the answer, especially for those critically ill patients. But I think um, uh, we just don't we just don't know uh, what to do. Yeah. I think the real lesson, though, is to have a very low threshold to um, think of thromboembolic disease. Again, mostly for your hospitalized patients, any deterioration. You know, um, in those people, this is very much in play if, if they're if they're quite ill. And outpatients, I think it's still a a, a tough one. I, I don't know. Do you want to give me your thoughts on on how well, you would, uh, I, what do you do with those people? If, if I have a if I have a a nagging concern, I'll I'll send them for a CT angio and just answer the question because especially in younger people, we've seen a fair amount of of PTE, but it's 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 sporadic. Um, so. I haven't been using anything else, not even aspirin, although we are using non-steroidals, but those are different because they don't inhibit the thromboxanes uh, uh, relative to the cycle. Uh, One thing that might be worth it, mentioning uh, in hospitalized patients, we did a study in our hospital where we looked at the rate of thromboembolic disease. It was about 7% in people who were hospitalized, but the rate of bleeding uh, was actually about 7% also, <laughs> serious bleeding. So I think there's still... You know, there's this equipoise going on in hospitalized patients as to whether you do or don't go to that intermediate or high dose, but you definitely have a low threshold to work it up as, as you did with your patient. So. so, so Shiva has a question here about CD4 counts and, and any of the HIV, um, cohorts that have looked at this, did the CD4 count matter? You mentioned no, most uh, viral of the cohorts, load, but what about C- great, it's a great question. Most of the cohorts, most people are on ART and, and, um, a minority of people are, um, with low CD4 count. There was one study that I didn't have time to highlight, but I'll mention now that was really nicely coordinated out of the University of Missouri. It was a cohort study and they looked at, uh, people with HIV with COVID and they collected data from all over the country. Um, um, and what they found is yes, there was in that particular study, um, worse outcomes in people who had low CD4 counts. Um, so I, I think um, that's one bit of data. Um, it's a registry study. It's a cohort study, but I think I think it's an important study. And, and so I, I think, you know, the other studies that I present didn't have enough to really comment, but that registry study, which is in CID uh, not long ago, did find that. So. Yeah. So we're, we're about out of time for this section, but I think you covered nicely. The, the challenge for all of us, I call it, getting sucked into the COVID vortex where life is just kind of topsy-turvy and every day feels like Wednesday. Um, you know, I can't tell Friday from Monday from Tuesday. Um, but but I think that the, it really is disruptive to our HIV care. Um, 
and, and now that we've gotten, at least we've gotten back to more face-to-face stuff and everyone wearing masks, it seems to be going okay, but it just feels like it's taken our eye off the ball of ending the epidemic and that type of thing. We talked about that a little bit earlier. Well, thank maybe you, I'll Raj. So, and, yeah. yeah, maybe I'll just say that um, the, our next session is going to be on HIV and aging, and I think there's no doubt that that's the group where we need to both pay attention about COVID because they're at the greatest risk for COVID, but there's a lot more that we need to do for people who are aging. And, and so that confluence of our people with HIV who are aging and COVID is, is another important topic. So maybe that'll be our transition over to the um, Dr. Hoy, who's going to take us through the last section. Um, the New Yorker has our, has a um, section called our far flung correspondence. And Dr. Hoy is certainly our most far, far flung um, uh, panel member in Australia. She has a clock prominently displayed behind her and it appears to be reading 7.30 in the morning. Is that right, Dr. Hoy? Correct. Yeah. Okay. So with yeah, that, yeah. it's a pleasure to welcome her um, to talk um, and lead the panel discussion, I should say, um, lead a panel discussion around HIV and aging. Over to you, Dr. Hoy. Thank you. 